Mr. Greenberg is on his first retreat. He goes up to Ajahn Mula Mula. Ajahn Mula Mula. He says, I've been eating all this vegetarian food and I've got, I've got, uh, I've got terrible gas. I'm farting all the time. But they're, <laughs> they're odorless and soundless. But I'd like you to recommend something because, you know, I'm farting all the time. And Mula Mula thinks, he goes, well, it all comes back to the breath. Just breathe in deep, hold, breathe out. Breathe in deep, hold, breathe out. So Greenberg goes away. And he comes back the next day and he goes, Ajahn, the farts now smell horribly. <laughs> what do you have to say for yourself? And Ajahn says, relax. Relax, relax. Now that we've cleared up your sinuses, we'll work on your hearing. <laughs> All right, so uh, Ajahn Mula Mula, he's at the center. He's before the Buddha. He's, he's uh, bowing. He's saying, uh, I who am no one, who am nothing, may my acts pave the way to liberation. And then the Anagarika, his, you know, this uh, training monk, comes and bows next to him and says, I who am nothing, who am no one, I am no one, may my acts pave the way to liberation. And the janitor is watching this and he's so moved that he puts down the mop and he walks right next to him and he starts bowing. He goes, I who am no one, who am nothing, and while he's doing this, the Anagarika pokes Ajahn and says, look who thinks he's no one. <laughs> it's not like there's another comedian down the block that you can choose from. You gotta... <laughs> so the fact that... <laughs> so the fact that I am giving this talk, as Chris said the other night, the fact that I'm giving this talk means that I didn't choose it. Uh, because <laughs> I would never give this talk, uh, which is why I'm just filling it up with this kind of material. But anyway, I'm giving a talk on, uh, I'm giving a talk on the seven factors, and uh, it, I have never heard a good seven factors talk. In fact, uh, I was at a retreat at Spirit Rock <laughs> when the woman who was giving the talk, she was so bored, she was crying out of the corner of her eye. <laughs> Noah, 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 Noah won't remember this, but he gave a whole series on the seven factors. Why? I have no idea. He was desperate for material. He <laughs> gave a whole talk on it like 14 years ago at New York. It was so boring, we installed a salad bar in the back of the room. <laughs> <laughs> seven factors, Sambodiana, Sata Sambodiana, whatever. It's, uh, it means the things that the, the wisdom that you develop to sustain any kind of awakening. And um, so Sambodhi is the part of that, the Sate Sambodhiana, that means awakening. There's a lot of suttas about what awakening is. It clearly uh, involves naroda, which means uh, release or cessation. What is cessating, you ask? Well, good question. Uh, dukkha, which is stress, suffering, mental agitation, the needless 
parts that we add onto life. Interestingly enough, in the polycanon, and I'm a bit of a polycanon geek, as Noah will probably attest, I started studying it about 20 years ago. So um, there's three kinds of conscious awareness that is in the polycanon. Um, one is called vijnana, and that's the kind of sense consciousness that reaches out to objects and things, people, and even to ideas in the mind that clings on to stuff. And um, that's one of the three. Then the second kind of awareness or uh, yeah, cognitive entity uh, form of attention is chitta, and that's the emotional mind roughly equivalent to the brain's right hemisphere, partly unconscious, uh, nonverbal largely, the part of your mind that has emotions and feelings. And then the third is manas, part of yoniso manasikara, and that is the skillful kind of cognition that reflects, doesn't add a lot of needless thought, but is still aware. So when you're working through a problem and you don't make it about yourself, you don't take it personally and you just view it from a, a perspective of, okay, right now this is suffering, what's making it worse? That kind of attention, awareness is called manas. And so the Buddha says that one of those three, vijnana, ceases when you achieve sambodhi, awakening. So it's a different kind of consciousness. You're not knocked out. You're not, you know, asleep or something. That would be kind of weird if the entire path led to a place where you were unconscious. But, I mean, <laughs> so you're awake, but you don't have all that, that stressful thought uh, which is um, based on munyana, sense consciousness. You still have, again, chitta, as the Buddha says, the chitta is not only luminous, it is always present. And manas, appropriate attention is always available, and it experiences joyous comprehension when awakening occurs. So you're comprehending, your emotional faculties are going on, but the part of you that's reaching out and trying to find happiness or security or meaning outside is uh, not happening. So uh, it's apparently a very, very pleasant, uh, wonderful state to get to. And um, I'm going to talk about three of the factors because I don't do all seven. And I don't want to talk to you about seven because you, you lose consciousness anyway, like around four. Um, the first factor that I use that helps me, I'm not claiming any kind of awakening, believe me, but I, <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, anyway, uh, so the first is samadhi, it means concentration. Uh, it's not a kagata, which means you keep only one thing in mind, so you don't have to worry about it, you just have to be aware of something while your mind can be aware of other things, so long as you keep one thing constantly in mind. Uh, a lot of you have been working with the breath. I haven't really used the breath much this retreat. I've been using the sound of the water fountain up there and the breeze over there. I use that because it creates a spacious mind. I keep that, uh, what's called an anchor. We call it an anchor because your consciousness can't drift too far away from what's happening in the present. If you keep something you keep yourself anchored in some way to real-time sensations. So why do we do this? Why do we keep something in mind? Why do we keep ourselves uh, tethered to 
what's happening internally or right in the, the present moment. Well, it's really, really difficult to sustain awareness on things that do not produce what are called dopamine rushes. Your brain is really triggered to look outside for threats or opportunities to survive. Why is this, you ask? And I think it's because of the 200,000 years we've been around as a species, probably 195,000 of those years, if we were doing this, we would be dead. Literally, the next day, eating somebody's meal, another tribe, animals, flash floods, whatever. You know, so it was in our interest that for the bulk of our history, we we're primed to look outside of ourselves. So to keep ourselves from looking out and seeking those dopamine rewards, because when we latch on to something that's a survival opportunity, it releases dopamine. What does dopamine do? It makes you feel great, makes you feel invulnerable, makes you feel really smart. Have you ever done a lot of cocaine? <laughs> Just thought I'd ask that. Uh, no, all right. <laughs> Wired for dopamine, rushes of vulnerability. On the other hand, when you get home, you've had a hard day of scavenging for food, and you get to someplace safe and you're with your loved one, that's when your brain releases serotonin. You're not going to get a big boost from that. But it's, uh, along with oxytocin, it's the neurotransmitter that allows you to feel connected and happy and joyous. And so in, from one perspective, what we're doing largely in this path, that long, slow build of increasing serotonin and oxytocin. And those things come from when you let go of seeking things in the future or thinking at, seeking uh, survival opportunities outside of yourself, shopping, gambling, uh, binging on food. And when we just settle and we focus on the, what is present in our life that makes us feel secure. So in concentration, what we're doing is we're bringing the mind back away from that hunt, away from that search. It's the, it's the practice that allows me to detach from the dramas in my life and become present. Again, you don't have to keep only one thing in mind. That's what the word akagata means in Buddhism, and it's the higher jhanas. You just need to know when you're breathing in or out or the, hear the sounds or have the metaphrase going on. But you can have other things there, too. So it's not easy to do this. Uh, Walter Mischel did this wonderful Stanford marshmallow test in the 1960s with kids. And he, the test goes like this. You put a, a marshmallow in front of a six-year-old and you say, I will be back in 10 minutes. And if you do not eat that marshmallow, I will give you a second marshmallow. How cruel is that? <laughs> They traced the kids that didn't eat the marshmallow. They did wonderfully. They graduate. They, they live in, where is that? Laguna Beach? Who was saying that? <laughs> Laguna Beach? <laughs> they live in Laguna Beach. They're like doing really well. They like, they got their degrees. And then the other ones, the kids like me, we ate the marshmallow the moment the, you know, the fucker didn't even live in room. And I give me this fucking marshmallow right the fuck now. And. <laughs> And those kids did so badly. <laughs> we did so badly. 
Yes, we wound up in Brooklyn. <laughs> we were a mess. And they decided that it was really important to dis discover what was the secret of the kids that didn't eat the marshmallows. And guess what? They videotaped them, and they saw that the kids that didn't eat the marshmallows, get this, this is so smart, they looked somewhere else. <laughs> They didn't look. Who? If only my parents had told me this. They didn't look at the marshmallow. They looked. They're like, there's this whole room around here. If I don't look at this marshmallow, I can go to Laguna Beach in 40 years. I can have like a private practice. But no, I like. <laughs> so anyway. Uh... So they, you need to have a distraction. You need to have something that, that pulls the mind away from the, the juicy thing in life that your brain really wants. Another great guy, Dan Wagner of Harvard, did this uh, wonderful series of experiments called White Bears. There's this line by Dostoevsky, there's nothing more difficult than to not think about white bears. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> You've already thought about a white bear. And he did this test where he said to one group of people, don't think about white bears, and then you have them free associate, and every time they thought about white bears, they had to hit this silent button. And then with the other group, he said, do think about white bears whenever you want, and now free associate, and have them hit the button. It turns out the group that he said, don't think about white bears, thought about them three times as much than the ones he gave permission to. When we greet things and allow things and don't push things out of the mind, they arise and they pass, but when you try to push something out, when you try to not think about something, it keeps coming back because you're creating what's known as cognitive overload. You've got the thought that you're not supposed to think, which is sitting in the right hemisphere going, I'm going to think, I'm going to think this, I want to think this. Then you've got the left hemisphere that's going, I can't think that. And then you have the rest of your consciousness while you're trying to FaceTime with your kids while you're driving 95 fucking miles per hour. <laughs> So seriously, concentration is great for detaching from dramas but, and uh, great for anxiety attacks. What you do, is you, if you ever have panic attacks, anxiety attacks, make your out-breath twice as long as your in-breath. Don't worry about your in-breath controlled by a part of the brain because the medulla won't do anything. It doesn't speak very well to the midbrain. But the out-breath tones the vagal vagus nerve, which sends a message back up to your insula, which sends a message to your amygdala that says, everything's okay. I wouldn't be breathing like this if I was about to be attacked by a bear. So it actually allows you to relax. So concentration is great for that. However, it also leads to what's called spiritual bypass. If you try to use concentration every time an emotional experience, sadness, grief, despair, an unwanted painful memory comes up, it will lead to bypass. The memory, just like with the white bears, will not go away. It will be simply shifted over to the right hemisphere. It will, will remain, and it will try to continually get our attention. The second tool after concentration is mindfulness, known in Pali as sati. And this involves that letting go of the thing you're keeping in mind, whether it's the breath or the sound. And then what you do is you open your awareness and you greet, as Ajahn Chah said, it's like you're sitting in a chair, you're in an information center and people are coming through. These are the, the emotions and thoughts in your mind, you're just greeting them. You're saying hello. And when they try to stop and talk to you, you say, I see you, you're Mr. Greenberg, you can keep moving along. 
and then the next thought or idea comes along. So that's like just the, the basic foundation of it. And very often, though, we have to use mindfulness in a more advanced way, which is an emotional event will not just arise, but it will stick. Now, if awakening in the great pleasurable states in the mind is like a river that flows where anything can flow through the mind, if something arises and it stops and it doesn't pass, anxiety, fear, despair, grief, then what is going on is the following. Essentially, your right hemisphere, your emotional mind, is sending a message to your conscious left hemisphere. And the brain is doing this all the time. We have what's known as bilateral brains. We have right hemisphere, which has all of our emotions. And those emotions are created almost entirely by one kind of experience. What's that kind of experience that creates all of our emotions? How securely we connect to other human beings. We are social animals. What allowed us to survive and become the dominant species in a relatively short time is that there is no species that connects as you do. Why? Because you have a brain that allows you to speak and be rational with your left hemisphere, but your right hemisphere can communicate with other people non-verbally. And those communications are the very foundation of our happiness. We start off our first four years of life communicating emotionally. We start to use language around three and a half by five. We're, we're connecting with people primarily through language and consciousness shifts from the right hemisphere, which is the emotional, to the left hemisphere. But throughout our lives, we are still seeking to have our emotions be understood. When the child cries and it runs to its mother, it wants its mother to do a few things. What does it want? It wants its mother to pay attention. That's called attunement. It wants its mother to understand why. That's sympathy. And it wants its mother to mirror the emotions back. That is what's called empathy. If you get that, you feel a secure connection and you feel a sense of alleviation, and then what Barbara Fredrickson says, you have a broaden and build emotion. You experience joy. You experience security. Your emotions are regulated. But what happens if your emotions are not uh, particularly attuned or given space or tolerated, or you have an emotion and you're shamed by your caretaker? Well, those emotions get repressed and get, uh, they create a traumatic well of repressed emotions that sit there and wait for some experience in your life that reminds you of that situation or that emotion and triggers them. And then those emotions send a message. You get sad, you feel anxiety, you feel anger, you feel uh, shock whatever the core emotion is, shame or guilt, and it starts rising from the right, and it's seeking our attention, and for a lot of our adult lives, guess what we do? We act like the abandoning parents. We don't pay attention. We think our emotional life uh, is inconvenient. 
We think our emotional messages, our sadness, our fear, our anxiety, we think there's something wrong with it. And there's nothing wrong with any emotion that you've ever had. Every emotion experienced, no matter how inconvenient, contains an important emotional belief, structured often much earlier in your life. And what do these emotions want at the very heart? They want attention. And what gives them attention? Mindfulness. So rather than distracting yourself or myself when an emotional experience arises or an anxiety, a fear, a sadness, or even a memory that's, tr that's very disturbing comes up, in this practice we sit and we create a safe container for it. That means we don't act it out, but we don't push it away. The safe container is a place where the felt experience the agitation in the mind, the entire thing can arise, and we experience it, and we stay with it. The right hemisphere, your emotional mind, is not time-stamped. Things that happened 40, 30, my, my case, you know, 50 years ago, can still have the same relevance. If I experienced a shaming, a rejection at five or six, those memories that create what's called internal working models of what I expect from other people, they're just as active. And those emotional experiences, they do not fade. They stay just as active and just as strong. And those beliefs take a lot of experience to undo. You can't argue with an emotional uh, belief because it's felt, it speaks through the body, it's an experiential learning that is in a part of the mind that's largely, for the most part, unconscious. I'll give you an example of this um, about, uh, oh, I don't know. Seven years ago, I was asked to speak at uh, AA 11-step meeting, and um, it was right before the 11-step meeting, and before I had... Uh, spoke, before I spoke, I had gone out uh, to eat Korean food. Big mistake. I'm sitting there, the guy's reading the opening remarks, and I realize I'm not going to make it through the meeting. I run to the bathroom. You can, you don't want to imagine. It just all happens. And then, I'm right outside this meeting, there's this thin door, they could probably hear the entire guttural experience. <laughs> the sound of fish dying. And, uh, <laughs> and then I look, and there's no toilet paper. <laughs> and I scream out, there's no toilet paper! <laughs> and every, the entire shame of my Jewish ancestors <laughs> has risen up through my DNA, and I am now, like, in the greatest of shame and despair. I go out, I'm like sweating profusely. I can't see because I'm sweating so much. And from that point on, for years later, before I would give a Dharma talk, I would have the experience of, oh no, I'm going to fart loudly or shit. <laughs> IBS. I gave myself IBS. So my right hemisphere got the belief that before I speak with people, it has to exaggerate the feelings that are going on in my colon and amplify them for my attention, which is the last thing I want to be aware of. And for many years, I viewed this 
perhaps you could understand as an inconvenience. <laughs> but it was only until I realized that this was containing an important emotional message. It was concerned for me. It thought, unless it highlighted our colonic state right now, I would probably not make it through entire meaning. So, every emotion experience, suppose you have insomnia on a retreat, right? You get there, you can't sleep. Why is this? You're in a new place, a new situation. You don't know what is expected of you. Your right hemisphere is saying, I better stay vigilant. I can't fall asleep. They might attack me. I don't know what's going on. I got to figure this shit out. I don't know what the hell they want there. And you know what? Guess what? <gasps> Silent retreats are meant to activate us. It took me a long time before I realized this, because human beings are social beings. And what do we do here? We say you can't talk, you can't look in each other's eyes, you can't make any contact. Guess what that does? That activates every abandonment, rejection, shaming experience you've ever had. It's just gone, holy fuck, this is hell, and it arises. And the beautiful thing about it is because you're in a supportive environment, you can learn how to be with these emotions. You can learn how to hold them safely. You can learn how to be with these really important emotional messages that your mind has been sending you all the time. But most of the time when we feel lonely, we go on Facebook. Or when we feel disconnected, we go on Facebook. Or if we feel lonely, we might go on Tinder. Or <laughs> Grinder? Grinder? What the hell? It's... <laughs> We immediately seek something to alleviate it. But here you don't have Tinder. If you have Tinder, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Turn it off. It's like a boot camp for feeling your emotions. And how do we do this? One, pull your attention away from the external trigger. You're sitting next to somebody who keeps shifting and making loud sounds, breathing loudly. You, your roommate, you can't stand, pull your attention away from them and bring your awareness internally to what the emotional experience is. If it's hysterical, as they say, it's historical. It mean, what that means is something old has been triggered. If it's stuck, it means something very old, an older experience has been activated. It's not about the person you're sitting next to. It's not about the roommate. Well, maybe a little bit. That schmuck is a little loud. But anyway, it's also about the old experience. So the second is welcome it. And this is really hard. But our natural experience when something arises in emotion is to go, no. I don't want this. This is inconvenient. I'm trying to sit here, be the Buddha. I'm trying to be the, the most quiet, statuous person there is. And now this feeling of deep sadness or anger at the, the teacher uh, is coming up. And I don't want to feel this. And we want to instead still distract ourselves. Maybe we'll want to use the breath as a, a spiritual bypass. But no, we stick, we say hello to it. We let go of the external trigger that's activated, we welcome the experience, and then we break down the experience to these components that we've been talking about. First, how does that anger, that sadness, that fear feel in your body? What are the feelings that are being activated in the front of the body where we have a lot of our emotional messages being sent? And what are the thoughts then finally that come up? And then, we greet this experience with what's called sampujana, bare non-judgment 
observation, just watching. So much of the practice is based on creating the safe container because just like children who are communicating emotionally, our right hemisphere is constantly seeking our attention through these emotional, nonverbal messages. Part of your mind is desperately asking for you to simply pay attention like a child desperate for proximity and attunement from a parent. And if you can give it that, you can repair so much of the early damaging experiences, even children of the good enough parent had damaging experiences at times, times when the parent was not available, patterns of the parent was pulled away, times when we couldn't, even the best parent has, has stresses and obligations, and so we are all carrying around woundings that are simply seeking to be seen and given attention. Now, the beauty of mindfulness is that it can address so many of our repressed emotional experiences, but if you rely too heavily on it, your practice is dry. While mindfulness builds up equanimity, concentration is what builds up the joy and builds up the real sense of calmness, pasadi. So you want to do both. But then there's a third important factor, and that is called dhamma which means investigation. There are some experiences that keep coming back. You greet them, you hold them, you listen to them, but then they still keep coming back. A fear, a, a tendency to worry, a tendency to get caught up and fixated on a specific relationship. So frequent visitors, no matter how much you hold them and you pay mindfulness, attention to them, they still keep coming back and they still want your attention because just giving them attunement isn't enough. They need sympathy. They need empathy. They need something more. They need understanding. They need more healing. So the practice that the Buddha talked about in conjunction with this investigation that heals these really difficult emotions is what's called yoniso manasikara. It's using the left part of your brain that's always active, even when through awakening, manas. And it's the part of your mind that can reflect and hold something without taking it personally and simply understand what it's trying to tell you, what the message is. In one moving sutta, the Buddha says, with Yonisa Manasikara, we can interpret all the signs our minds are sending us. So in other words, this is the part of the practice that allows us to interpret and get to the message beneath what some people call our symptoms. Now, most people don't want to know what our symptoms have to say. We just view them as symptoms and we go, I don't like my panic attacks, I don't like my anxiety, I don't like my sadness, I don't like my fear, I don't like my anger. I want it to go away, thank you very much. I don't want to understand it. But if you do that, you are ignoring and re-wounding very important emotional experiences. You are re essentially re-wounding yourself. People keep creating symptoms despite consciously, desperately wanting not to do so. Despite all the pains spent in therapy trying to ridding our symptoms, they keep on returning because they carry important emotional messages. 
The more we avoid, the stronger and more persistent they become. To resolve symptoms, we have to understand and address their messages. So how do you understand an emotion, a symptom? How do you understand it? Fortunately, the Buddha also had a tool, Yoniso Manasikara, and it involves a three-part practice. How do those three parts go? Well, before, suppose you have worry coming up. I'm going to do that one because I'm a New Yorker. I know this one intimately. Along with obsession and neurosis, worry is my personal domain. Thank you very much. So the three parts are understanding the allure, understanding the drawback, and understanding the escape or the replacement. It has two, the three words are um, allure is asada, drawback is adinava, and the way out is nisarana. So this is a very important tool. If you count the amount of times that the Buddha mentions sati and vipassana, or sampajana and vipassana all together in the canon, it comes up to about the same amount of time, uh, times that he mentions Yonisa Manasikara. And towards the end of his life, he mentions Yonisa Manasikara in more talks than any other tool because it's clearly a very valuable practice in allowing us to clear out the old, really painful experiences that keep on seeking our attention. So the first thing we have to do, in this, the Buddha says in the Savasava, is whenever something arises, stop asking, why is this happening to me? It's about a previous experience that has created an emotional belief that now is seeking your attention, but it's not personal. It's simply the way the mind works. It works the same way for everyone. So we're not doing anything wrong. We're not being specially singled out for agitation, neurosis, suffering. It's just an old wound that's seeking our attention. So the first part is to understand the allure. Why am I worrying? Well, the allure of worry is very obvious. It makes me feel prepared. Some part of me feels vulnerable. So it has triggered worry and anxiousness because it wants me to feel prepared. That's the allure. Suppose I'm an addict and I'm seeking craving. That part of me simply wants a reward to get out of my self-conscious anxiety. Suppose I'm self-fixated. I'm thinking always about, all, my mind keeps going back to myself and worrying how I compare to others. A part of my mind feels that unless I do that, I'll fall behind. Some people have extreme body dysmorphia. They feel that they're hideous and ugly. Why do they do that? Because their emotional mind believes that if they actually see themselves as they really are, they'll have to risk interpersonal deep relationships where they could be abandoned again. So they create the belief that they're ugly and uh, they don't look good as a way to opt out of human relationships. So there's a meaning behind every symptom, every emotion we express, and it serves a purpose. It's trying to protect us. The problem is that these allures started in childhood, they're very short-term, the protection that they offer. When the emotional mind is 
is, is set up very, very young. Around age two and three, our internal working models are structured. And so we use the same exact kind of techniques that children use to protect themselves. And so when we feel vulnerable, we will just worry like a child. And when we're angry, we'll stomp and we'll rage. We don't know, we haven't, that part of the brain hasn't caught up with present reality. So the next thing we do is we remind ourselves of the drawbacks. Why is this not in my best interest to continue? So with worry, obviously, the drawback is it turns into a nonstop obsession that keeps on hammering away, fills up my mind with agitation, and frankly, it doesn't really prepare me. You know, bad things happen all the time. I like to think that I have a, a really amazingly... Uh, capable, catastrophizing mind. I can visualize unlikely scenarios like the best of them, but still, I'm never prepared when really bad shit happens in the sense that it never matches the worries. And yet, at the other hand, sometimes I do perfectly well when I'm completely caught off guard and I didn't visualize it beforehand. So it's a drawback worry. Addictive craving is a drawback because it, it, you habituate really quickly and then you need more and the relief becomes increasingly short. Self-fixation becomes hardwired and we can never feel happy unless we're constantly perfect and always looking good to other people and it keeps us constantly on edge. So even though all of these emotional or corely embedded uh, behaviors have allures. They have reasons they're there. They're trying to protect us, but they're trying to protect us in a really naive way. But if we understand what they're trying to do, then we get to the third part, which is the escape. The escape is we understand what our emotional minds need, and we replace it with something skillful. So we're not ignoring the emotional need, but we're saying to the emotions, I can meet your needs as an adult in a way that will be lastingly useful, not short term. So for instance, with worry, when I worry, my brain is saying, my right hemisphere is saying I, it feels vulnerable. It feels I might be rejected by other people. It feels like I might be wounded again. It feels also like something bad might happen that I'm unaware of. So what I do when I worry is I say, oh, I get it. I'm vulnerable. And then I do what the Buddha called the skillful recollections. I bring to mind reflections of how many people in my life that care about me. I reflect on all the times that I was caught off guard in life and I still did okay. I bring to mind all of the times I have even been through really difficult experiences and still survive. So what I'm doing is I'm understanding the message, but I'm treating it or taking care of it in a very creative, gentle way that doesn't cause more suffering. It alleviates it. This is the part, Yonisa Manasikara, where we get to use our our minds that are creative and we get to address our needs in ways that involve 
as one teacher of mine said, inventiveness. So you see in a retreat that you are being activated by a roommate. You're feeling angry because they snore or the person next to you uh, shuffles a lot. And so what does that mean? You see, oh, this is activating anger, that unless, there's a belief here, unless I get angry, people will push me around, that it's my anger that keeps me safe. So what's, how do I replace the anger is I simply go, okay, I'm going to sit somewhere else. Or I'm going to ask someone for help with a roommate, or I'm going to, if some way, just talk about the experience with a retreat manager. I'm going to address the need, but not resort to the anger. I'm going to gently find a creative solution that meets the needs. One of my favorite um, case studies uh, with this, uh, I read, uh, using this technique, uh, this woman, 28 years old, uh, mar uh, not married, she's engaged, and she's living uh, at home with her mother. And both her mother and her fiancé want her to leave home. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, you're 28, what are you doing? And she goes to, I think, a Buddhist therapist, if I remember, and uh, it might have been, I uh, can't remember who it exactly was. She goes to the therapist, and the therapist says, okay, it's sending you a message, this fear of leaving. Every time this subject comes up, you want to run and hide in your room. You want to break up with your fiancé. Let's understand the message. What's the message your emotional mind is sending? And she says, well, when I think about it, and I don't judge it, it, I believe deep inside that if I leave, my mother will die. And he says, let's just sit with that and stay with it, and we're just going to close our eyes, and you just think about what that brings up, the fear that your mother will die if you leave. And she runs with it, and then out of the mists of her memory, this event when she was very young and her mother was in an abusive marriage and her father was drunk and about to beat up her mother, and she stood in between the father and the mother, and the father, seeing the little girl, stopped and walked away. And from that age, she, became, she got the belief that my proximity, my presence, is keeping my mother alive. So if I leave, my mother will die. Now you might say, why would an adult have that belief? But emotional beliefs are timeless until we change them experientially. So when that emotion comes up, he told her to simply, when the fear came up, he simply told her to repeat, I believe my mother will die if she leaves, without any judgment, bringing it awareness. And then he said, when that, those, those right hemisphere neurons are triggered, what I want you to do is look around for signs that your mother is safe, or reflect that your mother is no longer with your father, that she's safe. So he f understood the emotional need, but he replaced it with a skillful alternative. And that's exactly what the Buddha was suggesting with Yonisa Manasikara. So I love this practice. I love the fact that it's in the seven factors because 
for me, it allows me in, the, in retreats to really intimately get to know the emotional content of my mind and the needs that I've been not addressing through my life. And it allows me to begin to learn how to take care of myself in creative ways. And the more we do it, when those messages start to come up again and again and again, we hardwire the brain, as Donald Hebbs, the great neuroscientist, says, neurons that fire together wire together. Eventually, when I get worried now, I automatically reflect on how many people I'm connected to and care about me and will take care of me. It's now a hardwired practice. So I have actually neurally hardwired the deactivation of worry. Now I only have about 47 more neuroses to go through. <laughs> I also unwired the tendency to compare myself or worry what other people think about me. Believe me, I couldn't be doing this shit if I did. I literally, though, would reflect before I'd give a talk on the people that would love me still be there, the connections that I had that would make me feel secure, and I would remind myself that it doesn't, doesn't matter how any talk goes. And that's how I learned to, to get over my fear of speaking in public. Fear not by avoiding it, not by trying to conceal it, by disclosing it, understanding its message, and addressing its needs. So in conclusion, if you haven't been listening up to now, if it's all gone by you because I speak really fast, that's completely okay. Here's the conclusion. One, a, there is an awakening. It's a mind state that doesn't grasp or cling at external things for happiness. It's a mind that is like a river when everything can flow through it. Concentration is what allows us to pull the mind away from its hunt for security and survival advantages out there and allows us to develop an internal state of peace that is unconditional. Mindfulness is what creates a safe container to hold those emotions that are sticky, that get clogged up and won't pass. And Yuriso Manasikara, understanding the messages of those emotions and addressing them is what allows us to treat the frequent visitors that come again and again and again. <laughs>